0: Hello, hello, and hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back for another episode, if not now, when? And today, I am so beyond excited to introduce you our today's guest, Wilson Haley. Wilson is such a character, guys, from multiple levels. Number one, he is born and raised in Austin, Texas. Wow. Which is such a weird thing on its own, in case you did not know. People, nobody ever from here. Everyone transplant in Austin. That's number one. Secondly, he he lived in Beijing from age of 16 to 27. Wow. I don't even know who I am at the point when I'm 16. He already go after his dream. How amazing is that? And during those times, he met his love of his life, his wife, Emily, and he stumbled upon his true passion, coffee. Then they opened a coffee shop in this tiny little 180 square foot uh, shop in Kutong, Beijing, China, named Rager Pie, And the coffee shop become very quickly become a phenomenon of the local and also be featured by many, many, many successful publications. Wilson also part of the coffee history in Beijing by one, introducing pie to face event, two, by introducing cold brew nitro to China. Wow, what accomplishment. And today, Wilson, his life come back full circle. He today in his entire family in Austin, Texas, they back to their loot and found and create Test Tespresso. With that, I am so excited. Thank you so much, Wilson, for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited.
0: Yes, yes. Oh, my God. What a journey, Wilson. Can you tell us a little bit about when you were 16, what were you thinking? How do you get yourself to China?
1: Well, so I do believe that there are a there's a certain type of person out in the world who, if they get bit by that wanderlust bug, they just have to get out. And that was definitely (laughs) me. You know, I grew up in Austin. I love Austin. But, uh, you know, as a teenager, I just I needed to get away. So this opportunity fell in my lap and I said, sure, why not? Let's go to China. Let's see what it's about.
0: And you would not even hesitate, not even fear when you were 16.
1: Yeah. At that point in time, I was full of confidence, had no fear. Everything was perfect when <laughs> I said, yes, that's fine. Let's do it.
0: <laughs> wow. That's so incredible. So tell us, okay, the, the moment you land in China and every you don't know anyone, you barely probably read at the point, I imagine, there's not much English every, anywhere. How does it make you feel?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I I landed in Beijing in 2005. And at that point in time, you're right, there was very little English uh spoken or even on the signs there, so it was a it was a difficult transition. I I spoke almost no Chinese and I was living with a Chinese family mm-hmm. um who I couldn't we we could barely communicate. <laughs> uh, so it was a fun couple of a uh, couple of months there at the beginning. Wow. Um but yeah, no, it was, uh, I fell in love. I absolutely love the city.
0: It, was it hard for you when you, you know, during the process of getting familiar with yourself, with everything and getting to know the culture, the people in the process, was it scary?
1: I, I think I'm lucky compared to a lot of other people mm-hmm. who visit China because mm-hmm. I went with zero expectations. I had mm. no idea what China was, what it was about. hmm um, and so everything was new and fresh to me. And at that point in time, I was, yeah. that's what I was looking for. I was like, give me something new, something interesting. And so I ate it up. I, you know, I ate <laughs> up the language. I ate up the culture. Wow. I wanted to learn everything that I could.
0: That's fascinating. Okay. So SoundSide is a smooth landing for you. And what were you looking for at the time? And did you find it?
1: You, yes. So at, uh, at 16, my dream was to write a dictionary i was uh, <laughs> I was a huge fan of yeah, I know, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> write a dictionary. Um, I was a huge fan of uh, linguistics, especially uh, kind of the uh, heroes in the field, like Noam Chomsky, and I was you know I was really into learning a new language. I realized that if I wanted to really understand how how people communicate and how people um, process their own thoughts and to communication forms, that learning a different language would be critical. Uh, a critical part of that.
0: Why do you want to? And so to learn I said,
1: that? "Why yeah. did why did I want to learn yeah, a different what, language? what
0: what what what? what or Chinese
1: specifically? Yeah,
0: both. What inspire you? Why you think learning a new English, learning new language, new culture, new linguistic, Why that's interesting?
1: Well, so the uh, like we're getting off into the philosophical end of things, but the <laughs> my I have a I have a love hate relationship with language, in that it is the only method that humans can communicate with each other. And yet it's an imperfect method. Nobody can ever truly know what is going on in your mind, in your uh, in your soul. And yet by using words, you're able to communicate that somewhat. And so mm-hmm. you can guess and you can relate. And so having a better grasp on that, like mm-hmm. trying to figure out how language, what role it plays. I realized that having one language, just English is not the full picture and having a separate language that approaches thoughts and interactions in a slightly different lens would be critical to my own understanding of language as a whole, and so I said, "Hey, let's uh, let's learn Chinese." Wow. <laughs> um, part of the impetus being that Chinese is about as different as you can get from English, and that having those completely different lenses through which humans engage in interaction with each other and process those thoughts—that was my—that was my desire.
0: And when you were 16.
1: Yeah. Yes. When I was 16. <laughs>
0: Wow, incredible. You have a desire when you're 16 and you just dive forward in. Get a, pick a hardest language possible and on the plane, there you go.
2: Yep, yep. Okay, so it's how's a, the
0: dictionary writing process for you?
1: No dictionary was ever written. I don't plan on <laughs> writing a dictionary at any point in time. <laughs> so, Good. It was a dream at 16 and I've since uh, since moved on to
2: mm-hmm.
1: different different dreams.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the journey. So when you first landed, you know, you have a family you um, uh, live with at the time to learn about the surroundings and you were fascinated by the new culture. Just take us through the journey. Like what happened at that, that time and how do you um, discover coffee?
1: Sure. Um, so I, I moved to Beijing when I was 16 and uh, fell in love with it that year. It was my junior year of high school. I actually came back and finished high school here in the States, um, here in Austin. And then uh, immediately flew back to do university in Beijing, and so I went to uh, BLCU. I was the I was studying as a Chinese literature major, which in retrospect was completely insane.
0: Oh my god,
1: um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was so hard, guys! And as a Chinese naked speaker, I think that's a really hard school, even for me to to apprehend. You know, the language, and literature, all those readings, all the. Insane, incredible project.
1: I do have, I do have one quick, funny story about that. Yes, the, tell um, us. So, I've, hopefully, I've already laid the groundwork to let you know that I was devoted to learning the language, and that was my main goal. So, when I chose Chinese literature as my major, um, and I was the, I was the one, the one white kid, the one American in my class. All of my other, uh, um, the, all of the other students were Chinese, and so the teachers, all of my professors whenever it came time to finals, they would just give me a passing grade. And both of my parents (laughs) are teachers. I, all four of my grandparents, like I come from a long line of teachers and I absolutely hated that. I was like, I didn't didn't learn anything. This is like, I know that my first couple of years here is gonna be a very tough learning process. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to pass me. I want you to give me an actual grade like you were grading one of the Chinese students so that I can compare rather than just passing. And so most of my professors didn't understand it. There was one professor in particular um who (laughs) she taught ancient chinese and i took ancient chinese one it's supposed to be a one year course i took it for four years all four years that i was there and every year for the final she would try to pass me and i would literally get into i would get into this uh this argument with her at the end of the final and it would always end in me ripping up the test in front of her because she was like oh don't worry about it you're gonna i'm just gonna pass you and i was like I'm going to take your class next semester. I'm going to do this again <laughs> until I understand it until I can confidently pass this class. <laughs>
0: oh my God, guys, this is really difficult course, even oh my God, for native speaker, that's incredible and Wilson, after this point, why why are you so stubborn? why you just want to learn?
1: That's a really good question yeah i <laughs> I don't know why I was so stubborn. I don't know why I made what it so are you hard trying to prove? It was really just so that I could force myself to learn. I knew that i'm not a I'm not a great student um, despite the fact that I have this bizarre stubborn uh, streak in me um, and so me being in Beijing studying Chinese literature, I knew that I had to be in that environment in order to pick up on any amount of the language learning that I wanted to do. Had I been studying Chinese literature in you know in the u s and the states, you know I would have been a terrible student and would have been slacking the entire time and not had uh, that environment to help me learn. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: being there, forcing myself to go through that process and being stubborn about it at the same time, I think uh, is kind of what pushed me to get to where I am now.
0: So so what's next from that moment? Right,
1: so, so after that, um, after university in China, I decided to stick around for a little bit longer. And let's see, the first thing that I did out of university was I went to work for a... Um, a, um, what do you call it, a movie company. So it was me, the director and the director's wife and it was the three of us. And all day, every day, we would just sit down and write movie scripts. Um, and I was a writer slash translator for the director and we'd bounce around ideas and I'd help him with that kind of stuff. And that was uh, potentially the most fun job I've ever had, <laughs> but it quickly got frustrating uh, because the director, hes uh, he was a relatively well-known director, mm-hmm. um, m- moderately famous. And but so we would have the the issue was that uh, we would have investors who would come by and say, hey, I know you. I want to invest in your story. I want to do I want to invest in your next movie. And this director, he was, uh, you know, he was purely a story guy, had not a not a single business bone in his body. (laughs) And so when when people would say that, he'd be like, that's great. Awesome. But let me tell you about the story. And then he'd spend the next like four hours of this meeting trying to talk to them about the story that he was working on in his head. Mm -hmm. And it just got so frustrating for me because the investors would walk out of there and be like, well, you know, this guy's cool, but he doesn't have a team who can take care of the business for him. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't work with that. And so not a single movie while I was there, not a single movie went through. I said, okay, I've got to move on.
0: So, so then how do you pivot from movie to coffee? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, there was one step in between movie and coffee. So yes. after movie, I, I worked in manufacturing briefly and mm-hmm. um, in, mostly in like um, photography gear and photography backpacks and things like that. So it was kind of related to the, the movie world. Um, and then during my manufacturing stint, that shifted into being a business consultant for American companies. So an American, you know, like a product manager or a CEO, Or somebody from an American company would come over to China to, you know, check out their factories, to start trying to make deals with wholesalers and distributors in China, and my role would be to help them translate and help them be an interpreter um, and help them understand the cultural differences and how you do business in China and all of these things. So I would take them around, and it was a it was an exhausting position, Mm -hmm. Um, it was an exhausting job, and it was mostly freelance. It was mostly through. Um, like me working for myself, but then pretending to work for these companies or working for these companies on short stints. Um, And it just beat me up. And so my wife at that time, um, we actually weren't married at that point, but she was working at a coffee shop and she happened to accidentally poach the 2012 world barista champion of Shanghai into working at her shop with her. And so this guy is, there's a, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the whole coffee, the competitive coffee scene, but there's a barista competition Mm -hmm. where it's a whole dog and pony show where the baristas go and they talk about the particular coffee that they've sourced and how they worked at the roaster to get the exact roast that they wanted and how they go about brewing it. And they sit before a panel of judges and they make them all these drinks. And so they're judged both on their ability to uh, do showmanship and talk about things and educate the panel of judges but Mm -hmm. also on their technical skills of actually making the coffees and it's a it's a rigorous process and becoming a champion of even at a regional level Mm -hmm. um, is incredibly difficult and so this guy was you know he was top of the top wow Um, yeah and my wife had no idea when she first started working with him Mm -hmm. Um, and so he kept it hidden he kept it under wraps because he didn't want to you know, he didn't want to work with people who were like, oh, you're amazing. Oh, teach me everything. He didn't want to work with people who were fawning over him, right? But eventually he, he warmed up to my wife and he's like, hey, you know what? You are, I really like you. And thank you for like getting me this job, even though you have no idea who I am. I'm going to take you under my wing and I'm going to teach you everything that I can about coffee because obviously you love it. Obviously you're interested in it. Mm-hmm. So she was the first one to get into coffee. Um, at that point in time, I was just like, hey, anything that's cheap and caffeinated, send it my way i'm in wow (laughs) so she one day she was like hey do you want to open a coffee shop and me being a business consultant i was like coffee shops are the pipe dreams that everybody has they are terrible businesses uh they're for mom and pop shops and there's no way we can ever make any money off of this let's do it let's let's see what happens
0: (laughs) wait what but you just said it's not a A viable business idea. How do you pivot from that moment to say, yes, let's do it. How does that thought process go?
1: So I think that goes to show just how unhappy I was in the business consulting role. It was taking a toll on my, on my body, on my health, on my liver in particular. And I said, you know what, this is something that she loves. I, if, she is going to have any chance of success, then you know, I can help her with the business side of things and she can work on the coffee. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's try. Let's see what happens. So if, Worst case scenario, mm-hmm. we have a little shop and then we move on to something different.
0: Mm, so if you don't want to support her at the time.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: Okay. Wow. That's how all the story began, right? You just never know.
1: Now there is one other side to that story. Okay. Um, so she was going to do the coffee but my me being involved, my my contribution was the pie. Um, <laughs> yes. So for several years in Beijing, there were no places that you could celebrate Thanksgiving. There were no places you could buy pies. Um, and this is this is a long time before my business consulting roles. But I used to throw these massive parties where I would make you know 15, 20, 30 pies um, and invite you know fifty people over, and we'd have this amazing Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of became known in the expat, like the American expat circles, as <laughs> the guy who makes pies.
0: <laughs> You're the pie guy. Got it.
1: I was I was the pie guy for a little bit, and it wasn't the kind of thing. I didn't I didn't really sell them. Um, I brought them. Like people would be like, "Hey, can you make me some more pies? I'm going to this other party." And at that point, I'd be like, "Sure. <laughs> like just pay for the pay for the materials, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll send you on your way." Um, and so when my wife and I decided to open up this coffee shop together. Uh, the idea was coffee and pie. Those are the only things that we know how to do. Let's put them together, and that's all we're going to focus on. We're just going to be really good at pies and really good at coffee, mm-hmm. and we'll call it a day.
0: I love how simple it is.
1: Yeah, I'm. I, you know, I think we lucked out with keeping it simple rather than
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know trying to have a full menu and doing lunches and dinners and all that.
0: So, so at it that point, out. yeah. So at that point, is your kind of first time open on the business in China as an aspect was that experience yes. easy fun challenging
1: <laughs> <laughs> y- yes yes and yes it was it was easy fun and challenging in some regards yeah so let's see um we did not have an official business until year 2 and by that i mean we didn't go through the formal paperwork of um, you know, registering a company and going through like the joint venture nonsense. And mm-hmm. it's it's a whole mess for an expat trying to own a company in China. And what we did at first was we literally just rented a tiny little storefront. Uh, like you said, 180 square feet, I believe, it was 18 square meters so around there. And we re- we renovated it and built it out to be a cafe slash pie bakery. And I think we had four seats on the inside and then a little shelf on the outside where people could stand and hang out. Um, and so that first year we were under the radar, I guess, but that was kind of the norm in the area for most of the other restaurants. They didn't, they didn't have a registered business. Um, and so like that wasn't, that wasn't one of our priorities. That wasn't a huge issue, but at the time that we did this, things were kind of shifting and changing in Beijing and like the political, um, groundwork of what was going on there. Uh, was changing. And so around year two, one of the local, um, he was the local health inspector and he was a guy who came by every once in a while as a customer and didn't really, uh, he was like, Hey, you guys are doing great. We love that you're here. This is awesome. One day he came by um, dressed in his uniform and he brought with him two other personnel, one of whom was a photographer and one of whom was a Spanish translator. And I didn't really understand that why he thought (laughs) I spoke Spanish. (laughs) But I remember this day vividly because I knew I knew it was going to happen at some point. And so, you know, he he waltzes in and he's got his arms behind his back and just kind of looks around at things and he starts talking to me. And, you know, I respond to his questions and answer them. And then halfway through like the first set of questions, he just like immediately relaxes and says, you know what? Thank you so much for speaking Chinese with me. All of the other businesses around here that have foreigners that we go visit, they claim that they don't speak Chinese, but we know that they do because they do business with Chinese people. And it's really frustrating for me to do my job. Mm-hmm. So thank you for actually communicating with me. Like this is a routine inspection. This is not a big deal. Oh. This is just me coming to kind of put you on paper mm-hmm. and take, get this taken care of.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he, he goes through and he does the whole thing and he checks everything out. And he's like, look, this, this place is not up to code at all.
0: Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> no.
1: That means that we didn't have everything that we needed to be operating as a, as, a, as a restaurant. Got it. So he's the health inspector. He's coming to check and make mm. sure that we are uh, meeting everything. But what he does say is that, look, it's not up to code, but this is the cleanest restaurant I've ever seen. And you were doing a lot for the economy in my neighborhood. So wow. I'll tell you what, next time I come by and I have to do an inspection, I'm going to call you in advance. And all you need to do is take out your tables and chairs so that you're not classified as a restaurant anymore. I was like, oh, okay. That is a great outcome. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Wow. That sounds easy.
1: Eh, Yeah, it ended up being a lot easier. It was very nerve wracking before he and I started talking. Mm -hmm. Like I knew he was going to come eventually. I didn't know when he was going to come. I didn't know what it was going to be like. But after communicating with him, it was just like, hey, look, he's a person doing his job. I'm a person doing my job. Mm -hmm. And like, we're just trying to make that work together.
0: I want to take a second to unpack that. I imagine when you first walked in, you wasn't really clear about his intention and you probably was nervous. And, you know, this is a lot of, you know, different culture, different expectation. How would you able to, you know, decide, you know what, I'm going to just be honest. I'm going to just tell you like what it is. I'm going to communicate like how I would normally and get this, you know, moving forward. Was that the difficult and scary choice or you just always felt that's the best way to move anything forward
1: that's that's generally my approach to almost everything is hey i'm this is this is my stance this is how i do things and if there are consequences for it i'll manage them i'll deal with them Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people appreciate that approach Mm -hmm. and so any consequences that might happen if you tried to subvert things. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can work around them with people.
0: So so with that, I'm curious, you know, with that philosophy you have in mind, um in, in you, how do you obviously you coffee shop is a huge success after that visit, right? Um it's very, very famous and being uh featured by many um publication, right? What I'm curious yeah. about How's you view your point on doing business in China? Was that easy? Was that how do you able to like tell people who never been to China, who never think about doing business in China? How does that for you?
1: Right. So I think I think there's a, a an important distinction to be made. So when you're saying the like do business in China for. Uh, people who are not living there, mm-hmm. that usually means import, export, trade mm-hmm. stuff,
2: mm-hmm. which is a
1: heavy, a heavily regulated industry on both right, sides. Right, it's a different... Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a different ballgame. That's a different, that's a different mm-hmm. kind of situation. Whereas for us, saying it was a business is, you know, it was really just a little hole-in-the-wall uh, <laughs> coffee shop place. And the only people who had any say over the, uh, like, regulatory offices like sure there were plenty of rules Mm -hmm. and laws that go into effect but nobody in Beijing at that point in time followed those rules at all so the simple fact that we were even trying to Mm -hmm. made that guy's job so much easier and (laughs) so he appreciated that fact from us right I (laughs) love that for what we were doing, I would say it's a lot easier to do business in China when you're mm-hmm. going to open up a shop or something like that. That is probably not true anymore. I hear that things have shifted significantly in Beijing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but at that point in time, for us, it was. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so now your shop is super success. What's next?
1: So uh, yeah, we had, um, we I guess we were open for about three years and we won the best cafe from multiple publications each of those years. Wow. Um, and so that was, a, that was a huge deal for us. We were also the first to bring nitro cold brew to China. And that's kind of what put us on the map. Um, and so we were, there are lots of like, um, as coffee, the like specialty coffee industry started to grow mm-hmm. in China. We had a ton of people who were like touring, uh, they were doing like coffee tours of Beijing. Like they would travel from all over China um, and go to Beijing and check out a couple of different coffee shops that were known for having amazing coffee. And somehow we got put on that list, and so we'd always have these you know groups of uh, you know young professionals who were looking to get the best coffee experience and they'd come in and check us out wow. and that was always good for us
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, But yeah, so that that was it was up and running and it was doing amazing stuff and we were having a lot of fun with it. It was mm-hmm. one of the most fun things that I've ever done. And then my wife got pregnant and my mother got terminally ill at the same time. My mother was actually my mother and father were actually going to come to Beijing. They had already signed contracts. They'd already rented out their house in America, and they were, I think, a month away from getting on the plane mm-hmm. when she was diagnosed with uh, stage four uh, cancer.
0: Oh, I'm and... I'm so sorry.
1: Yep, yep. It's a uh, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of people have to deal with. It was it was very rough for us, mm-hmm. and that was a huge upheaval for our life, right? So I
2: imagine obviously,
1: yeah. like they had to they had to like get everything in order. They had to tell the the companies that they were going to work for, like, hey, we can't go to China anymore. We have to stay in the U.S. and get treatment. We're so sorry, they had to cancel their, uh, the agreement that they had with the tenants for their house and they had to get all of their plans completely changed back. And so during that time, you know, it was enough people for me as well, um, because I was like, I, I have to be with my parents while they're going through this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we, my wife and I, we thought through different scenarios about what to do. And we realized that the most important thing was uh, to make sure that our first child had an opportunity to spend time with my mother. Oh. And so that meant that it couldn't be just me going back. It had to be me and my wife going back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we decided to go back, move back to Austin um, at the end of 2016, I believe.
0: Wow. I so give so. up everything and just left.
1: Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a very sudden. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of break in things. Um, was
0: that a hard choice, hard decision, and how do you able to deal with that?
1: It was a it was a hard. It wasn't a hard decision. Making the decision was easy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The process and the implications of it were very difficult to manage, both emotionally and logistically, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is it hard to give um, up? Yeah. No. yeah 10 years 10 plus (laughs) years everything you know absolutely at that point
1: oh i i still miss it you know Mm -hmm. it's still uh a what would have been thing that's always going to be there it's like oh what could it have turned into had we continued making that uh making progress on that but i know that we made the right choice like i'm there's no regret tied to that
0: wow that's so incredible well you're such a leader that you Sounds like you always knew what you wanted it. So therefore, decisions decision is not hard for you to make and you're just always moving forward.
1: Generally speaking, that is the case. As long as I am <laughs> able to see things, mm-hmm. and understand mm-hmm. the scenario that I'm in, mm-hmm. making a decision is not, not difficult.
0: Was it hard for your wife that, you know, she's from there, she grew up there, that's her entire life at that point, and to um, just pack up and leave with you?
1: Yeah. And this is I'm sure that this is uh, something that you and anybody else who's lived in a different country can relate to. Culture shock is real. Culture shock is mm-hmm. a real thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, my wife coming back to uh, live in Austin, Texas uh, for her first time to America, actually,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and dealing with that culture shock, but also dealing with, you know, the gravity of the situation that my family was in.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, of
1: course, you know, she was pregnant. We were about to give birth. So it wasn't all sadness. There was some joy in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say that the first year and a half was very difficult for her. Mm-hmm. But now she's at the point where she's just like, I want to live in Austin forever. This is where I want to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> make my life.
0: Yes. Which
1: kind of surprises me. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I also love Austin. So I get it.
0: Mm-hmm. What is the hardest, you know, culture shock you set when you first come back for both of you?
1: Honestly, for her, I, I can't answer. I mm. don't really know what she would consider the hardest thing. I would imagine it would be... Um, Kind of friendships, we came back with, you mm. know, we, we were owners of a of a massively successful little pie shop, pie and coffee mm-hmm. shop. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a bunch of people coming through our doors every day that we'd get to interact with, a ton of friends oh. that we would be able to interact mm. with. And immediately moving back to uh, kind of what she describes as a very rural space, you know, Austin is rural compared Mm -hmm. to Beijing.
0: (laughs) Well, compared to Beijing, yes.
1: Yeah, it feels very empty in Austin, even though there's, everybody's complaining about the population and traffic. Yeah, we (laughs) didn't know anybody. (laughs) And so that was a, that was a difficult Mm -hmm. transition. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I would say the biggest thing was uh, managing the whole credit system. because I spent my formative years in Beijing, I obviously had zero credit built up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And even though we had um, we had the cash for a lot of uh, expenses, there were some things that we still couldn't do. We couldn't rent an apartment. Um, I had a lot of trouble buying my first car
2: mm-hmm.
1: because they, they almost required that I get some financing for it, even though I was trying to give them the entire price in cash. And they were like, oh no, you, if you do that, you have to get like a background check and we have to get the police out here in retrospect, I think they were just trying to, you know, make money on the uh, financing end, but mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I have that issue too when I first came here, but yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... So yeah, managing that and figuring that out was uh, mm-hmm. something that I never had to do before, and all of the people my age, uh, all of my old friends were like, dude, you haven't figured this out yet.
0: <laughs> was it hard to accept that, you know, when you were age of 27, 28, you kind of have to quote-unquote start from the beginning. Was that hard to swallow given that you were so you know successful and established at china at the time
1: yes there was definitely a um what would i say so it was a realization of my own status in china like while i was there living that life it didn't really make sense to me that um i had a network of people that i could rely on and that would support each other um, and that I was able to understand the system and that there were, I don't know, there were there were benefits of being a part of a community that I didn't have moving back here. And yes, like that was not something that I recognized until I didn't have it. Mm. Um, and so going through that process of like, oh, why is everything so difficult to, okay, wait a second, there's, there's not a network here of people that can support me. That's really difficult to uh, shift into.
0: So, how do I'm you? Still, to... no, I'm still working on that. So, what can you um, help us? Like, how do you move forward? The reason I ask for that is I think today you are incredible, you know, already kind of have established things that you want to accomplish in Austin. And I felt maybe a lot of listeners are in that point of life where, you know, it's that shift, the mental shift in terms of saying, oh, why this, why that? Okay, now this is, let's move forward. Like, that's hard. Battle, I guess. So, to hear about what's your thoughts? How do you um able to shift so quickly? Just for you know, short, shy about you know four years of time.
1: So, this is uh, this is advice that applies to different people based on your personality um, and how you approach interacting with people. But for me, it's it's easy to um, to seek out people and interact with groups of people, and then try to find some way that I can contribute to something. that on an individual level or an organizational level. Uh, So for example, one of the first things that I uh, started doing when I moved back is to, there's a, uh, the longest running Chinese language magazine in Texas. Um, And I reached out to the owner of that and said, Hey, I want to help contribute to this magazine. It looks like you guys are uh, working on building out its social media presence. And I want to help you kind of set out that uh, groundwork for that. And so that opened up a lot of doors for me in the Chinese community here in Austin. Um, I'm actually on the board of that, um, that magazine at this point. Um, and so like things like that, and then just like after that finding individuals who, you know you, you meet people, you talk to them, you find out what they do and you're like, Hey, is there anything that I could do for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, or just find something that they need and offer that. And so like, that was the way to build up. Mm-hmm. some amount of network and relationships and friends and mm-hmm. you know you keep doing that and there's reciprocation and that's that's the whole gist of having a community mm-hmm.
0: to me right well you're such a hustler i feel like you don't really give you much time you sell much time on whether it's grieving or thinking about oh feel sorry about it. for yourself you just decide and move forward taking actions with all the things possible you can do and then just move forward is that <laughs> well, fair to but, say well,
1: maybe maybe i'm presenting in the wrong way then because there's definitely been a lot of grieving and like second guessing and like wallowing in self-pity for sure um but those are you know those are time periods where mm-hmm. hopefully it's like a day worst case scenario it's like a week or so um but and i think that's a normal process for everybody going through something like that so
0: how do you pick this uh, up i'm curious i i
1: i don't know actually i think there's that's just a. Part of my nature is like, hey, mm. okay, I'm done. I'm done doing this. There's there's nothing going on here. Um, <laughs> this is not helping me anymore. Like it was, uh, mm-hmm. I needed to process something. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's been processed. <laughs> yes. And now I need to do something else to distract me. Mm-hmm. And if I can make that a productive thing for me or for others, then sure, let's do it. It doesn't matter what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay, so you back to Austin. Uh, you're with your family. Your wife is with you. You close-up shop. So what's today?
1: So right now I own a company called Tezpresso. Yes, tell Um, us.
0: How do you, how that journey all started?
1: So last February, actually, I guess it was about two years ago that I started thinking about this, this concept. I knew I wanted to get back into coffee. I knew Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something in coffee again. And looking at, um, I'm going to get into some kind of nitty gritty business things. I hope that's okay.
0: Yes, of course, please.
1: Sure. So, looking at the Austin market, like looking at our success in Beijing, I realized that we had a you know we had a very low overhead for a tiny shop. We had a lot of media success um, that boosted our presence, but more importantly, it was a coffee shop that existed in a city of like you know twenty eight or thirty two million people, depending on who you believe mm-hmm. and that's a you know that's a huge population that we get to work with and Austin, on the other hand, is a city of roughly one million, I believe greater Austin. Um I've also heard two million. I don't really know where it actually stands, but <laughs> either way, it's still you know it's it's a tiny fraction of the population of Beijing mm-hmm. and yet, for our overhead costs when I was doing research and looking at how much does rent cost, how much does labor cost they're about the same like Beijing and Austin dollar amounts mm-hmm. are about the same Wow, and so looking at the Austin coffee market, I was like well this doesn't this doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we're paying the same amount in all of our overhead and expenses were able to charge less money uh, for individual coffees. And the, um, the competition in the market is so large that mm-hmm. it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me to open up a coffee shop. So that was my line of thinking. I was like, I want to get back into coffee. I don't want to open up another coffee shop. And then I came across a statistic that made a lot of sense to me that there was in my market research um, that there's of the people who buy coffee, in the US, it's not specifically Austin, but I'm sure it applies to Austin um, as well. Of the people who buy coffee on a weekly basis, 70% of those people do so in a drive-through. And so that kind of clicked a little light bulb in my head. I was like, wait a second, okay, there's the coffee culture in, uh, in Beijing is one of exploration. Uh, Chinese people are looking to explore coffee and figure out what it is. And so it's a new concept where you get to delve into the science and the intricacies and the nuances of flavor and the roasting and the whole process, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the the story behind it. When most of the Western world, that's not the case. It's more of a uh, habitual, I need caffeine. <laughs> I, I need coffee to wake up. Yes. <laughs> what is the most convenient way for me to get that caffeine? And I get it. I was, you know, that was, that was where I was with coffee for the longest time. Um, and so having that convenience of a drive-through is what drove people to buy coffee for of the population. And so thinking, okay, convenience is the thing, that's the game. There's this other 30% of the market that is, there's maybe a portion of that that's for the specialty coffee that I love that I want to bring to the world. Uh, But that's not a huge market share. And if all the other local mom and pop shops are fighting over that, Mm -hmm. like why would I I get involved in that? Instead, I need to bring that level of quality and compete on the convenience side of things and make it more convenient than a drive-through. So how do you do that? you go to people's offices. So last year I started this company Tespresso and it's a mobile espresso bar pop-up. So I would go, um, we'd send a pop-up to offices. It would either be me or one of my baristas going to this office on a regular basis and uh, either serving or selling to the people who worked in that office complex.
0: Wow, that's incredible. That's a great concept. So then what happened?
1: Well, it was, uh, we were doing really, really well. Um, I was seeing more growth than I expected for the first year. And so I was excited by that. And then, so this January, I decided to finally hire um, the first two full-timers. And then, of course, COVID hit. (laughs) We were booked out for South by Southwest. um, And that was going to be a huge portion of this year's revenue. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge blow. Um, And COVID-19 hits and wipes out. All of our offices, I don't expect offices to come back to a point where we can send people as baristas out there again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think work from home is going to be part of the new norm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of companies are seeing benefits from that, and a lot of workers are loving it. So we are I've had to completely rethink this, this business model. Was that hard? Uh, trying to determine.
0: Was it hard to pivot in terms of you just started your business a year ago, everything going so yeah. well, you were so loving it and you know something unexpected hit and now you had to rethink the whole business model was that hard to to kind of come peace with
1: yes it was definitely it was was definitely a shock especially for the first couple of weeks Mm -hmm. i'd say the first three weeks or so i was just uh running around in circles racking my brain trying to gauge whether or not i could uh keep the employees on and have them do kind of part-time things Mm -hmm. um and just looking for opportunities that were in the same uh, the same realm that we were offering before, mm-hmm. and you know, by running in circles and trying to figure that out, I quickly realized that that's not the case. Things are not going to go back to how they were before, um, and trying to keep trying to maintain that is not going to work for our particular business model. And so we we had to pivot. And so I spent the next several weeks <laughs> racking my brain for what could we pivot to. Um, and luckily there was a, um, a service that we were going to launch at the end of this year, uh, where we would do a coffee subscription with all of our partner roasters. So we work with a bunch of different roasters. Um, I am a firm believer of the division of labor in coffee. So the people who grow should grow. The people who roast should roast and the people who brew should brew. If you're able to focus on, uh, each on one of those three things and do it well, then that will lead to a quality cup of coffee at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, rather than try to roast on my own, I work with roasters that I trust and I know that they do really amazing things. And so I was thinking like, okay, I can go serve in the office and I can get these roasters more business by selling their coffee to uh, individual customers on a monthly basis and also corporate offices on a monthly recurring basis. And so that's what we did. And that's what we're doing right now. Um, wow. Minus the pop-ups, minus the corporate um, coffee, mm-hmm. so we're doing individual subscriptions of amazing local Austin micro roasters. I test their coffees, I go through a strenuous, rigorous testing process, um, and pick the winner, and then I send those out to all of the subscribers. And it's been a lot of fun for, wow. you know, all things considered.
0: <laughs> wow, well, saying so, you know, one thing I, I love about you is, you always have such a passion to coffee that's, you know, very spoken throughout the journey and yet with you know pandemic hey unexpected nobody expect that you're able to pick yourself up very quickly and and really see look at the coffee community and see how do you able to serve and you know bridging um the roster and helping bring their coffee to the customer's hand and pivoting your business model so quickly so can fit with you know whatever's happening today i think that's incredible given such a short amount of time and how quickly you're able to turn everything around and still you know serving your customers
1: well i do think that's a that's a huge part of it is that you know the roasters that i used to work with i would you know i call them up and they would be complaining about how all of the cafes that they're working for have shut down and they don't have anybody buying their coffee anymore and they don't know how to get it to their customers and then my customers on the other side the people that i used to serve are over here complaining about hey i can't get good coffee anymore mm-hmm. all of the cafes that are in my area you uh tespresso i don't go to the office anymore there's no more tespresso how do i get better coffee
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: it was an easy like once those once those things aligned in my mind it was an easy solution it was like saying hey look these there are people out here who need better coffee but they don't know how to make it themselves mm-hmm. and so they go to cafes and there are roasters who make amazing stuff but they're they're smaller and they uh they only have like relationships with a couple of cafes like how do i connect those two that's an easy pitch for me and it's an easy way for me to contribute to both of those both of those groups of people you know
0: wow i, I love that and well I'm obviously you know so proud of what you accomplished today i'm curious you know, along the way, like coffee has been such an important part of, you know, your life, your journey. And today you want to serve, you know, coffee to customers. That's your mission, which is very obvious. Um, What's coffee mean to you? I'm curious.
2: The,
1: when I shifted to drinking specialty coffee, which I thought my my wife had to force me to get into it. There were two things that um, quickly became apparent to me. Number one was the health benefits. Um, And this is actually Mm -hmm. not something that I talk about a lot because I think that, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a, um, you know, I don't write scientific papers about the nutrition of coffee. But the anecdotal experience for myself has just been that going from um, burnt kind of uh, what's called second wave coffee of the old guard of what coffee is expected to be and where 99% of the coffee out there um, is roasted that's uh you know it's burnt and it it completely destroys your body like the the caffeine you get these crazy jitters there's wow. untold carcinogens uh there's mold in them all these kinds mm. of things and so like i when i shifted over to specialty high quality specialty coffee i quickly noticed my own um uh my own body's response to that like the caffeine was no longer a jittery kind of caffeination feeling um, i felt it, i felt Clear, clearer and more alert, um, you know, and then just like the inner, the amount of energy that I had throughout the day was a constant level as opposed to this crash and burn kind of a thing
2: um, mm-hmm.
1: and a lot of other minor health benefits. So that's probably the number one thing, but the number two thing, and this is one thing that I do talk about a lot is kind of the experience. So I remember very vividly the first time that I had a cup of coffee that tasted like blueberries And I think that's what? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So this is a thing that um, a lot of people have not experienced and which is why I, I love the uh, specialty coffee world of like helping people experience these crazy tastes in coffee Um, and blueberries is one of the most common ones that you're able to find. Um, In fact, the coffee that we're doing next month has a strong blueberry hint. Um, So I'm really excited to see how many of my subscribers Mm -hmm. are able to pull that out and kind of experience that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so. that, that
0: was not unexpected. <laughs> that sounds incredible, right?
1: It's, and... it's mind blowing the first time you experience it. It's crazy.
0: <laughs> wow! And my husband made me to make sure I asked you this question. Yeah, he asked me, "Are you addicted to coffee today? Oh, <laughs> and how many cups do you drink today?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, coffee is, you know, it's a legal drug. Caffeine is um, a legal drug, um, and so yes, I would say that I'm addicted to the caffeine. Um, uh, as I think the vast majority of people who drink coffee are. Um, I have, let's see, I, I usually, I don't drink as much as I used to. Um, so these mm-hmm. days I'll have maybe, maybe three cups, usually more like two cups of coffee.
0: Mm, wow. That's awesome.
1: It used you to got be a lot beans. more. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of testing involved these days. So I get roasters, I get coffee from a bunch of different roasters and then I, mm-hmm. I will test them. And so I'll drink little sips of a bunch of different coffees on some days to try to find out, mm. hey, which one is roasted well, which one has the most exciting flavors, and how do I dial that in and help my subscribers also figure out how to dial that in.
0: So why, I guess, you know, what what, what about coffee that inspired you? I feel like, you know, you are very, kind of put your scientist hat on, right? You know, trying to figure out the, the best taste profile, trying to bring the best experience to your customer. What about coffee that made you so... Um, so dedicated, you know, like you were when you wanted to write the first dictionary. How do you, <laughs> what does that mean to you?
1: No, I think it is, it, you know how a second ago, you, uh, when I said that coffee could taste like blueberries, you were kind of shocked. Yeah. So what it's, for me, it is my, it, one of, my favorite thing is to see people who have never had coffee that tastes amazing, kind of taste that blueberry mm-hmm. taste or taste some like cinnamon um, or dried mm-hmm. mango or something like that. And it just kind of pops out of their mouth. And they're just like, what? this is not coffee. This is not what I expect when I drink coffee. And so that experience of like mm. opening that door of experiences to people. So most people think of oh. coffee as like, hey, this is bitter. Uh, this is dark. And like, it's either I like it bitter and dark, or I'm going to throw some cream and sugar in that bitter and dark thing. Right?
2: Yes. Those are the That's two it. types of people. Um,
1: and opening <laughs> like for both of those types of people, opening the doors for them and saying, hey. There's a third option Mm. out there. There's this coffee that tastes not like what you expect that has this nuanced flavor to it and you Mm -hmm. can enjoy it black or with cream. Like that's a thing.
0: Wow. So you want to bring a new experience to people. You want to see that wow factor in your customer's face and eyes when it tastes the first set of coffee that you produce. Oh,
1: absolutely. That's
0: incredible.
1: Well, it's like I've been on that journey. I've, I've gone mm-hmm. through that path and like realizing how, how enjoyable it has been and how much it's changed kind of my morning routine. Like, I just mm-hmm. want that for other people, you know, like, Hey, this is an experience that I've opened yes. up for myself. <laughs> I want to show you mm-hmm. so that you can have that experience and decide if it's valuable to you as well.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's incredible. And Wilson, we're going to um, add the link below. So our customer or listener can find you and get a subscription, try the brew itself, and and really taste, the brewery.
1: Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) I guess one other thing to note that we'll throw in there is a little self-promo thing. This is is not even a self-promo. This is a completely free class that we offer. So every week um, I jump on Zoom, uh, Facebook Live and Instagram Live, and I do a a live show of how to brew the featured coffee of the month. And it doesn't, you don't have Mm -hmm. to have that coffee of the month uh, to be able to learn from what I'm teaching. So if you ever want to join on, we'll throw that link in there as well. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah.
0: Every, is it every month? Uh,
1: sorry, every week. Uh, so we do it every, every week, Sunday, wow. 8.30 in the morning. So I actually just got done doing that this morning.
0: Perfect. 8.30 central time. We're going to put a link below.
2: Awesome.
0: Um, I love that, Wilson. You know, you, this is a long way home, right? Long journey since 16, go to China, experience coffee, met your wife and then come back here and now, you know, everything kind of come back full circle. I'm curious, Wilson, you know, besides from all those incredible things that you accomplished experience that you had, who do you think you become? Who do you transform? Is this something that along the way that you felt you become someone that you wasn't, you did not know before? (laughs)
1: That's a, that's a, that's a a deep question. I might have to think on that one. Um, I know that I'm still changing. I know that I'm still, transforming on a daily basis
0: um, we all are
1: yeah and that's
0: well the reason the reason i asked for that is you know i think about how i started my journey mm. how i came to stay you know 10 years ago and I, I just i start realize who i have become which is someone i'm i'm deeply proud you know i think because of my traveling experience, I think I have a lot of empathy on different culture, different perspective. I love people for that. I love trying different food, different culture. And think, I think today, because of that, I've been more loving. I've been more empathetic. That's one. And then secondly, you know, traveling a new country, having a new life is completely not easy. You are constantly uncomfortable every single day. I think because of that experience, it made me feel like, wow, I can do that. I can do this. Now, it gave me tremendous courage on whatever dream and whatever goal that I felt I have inside of me. So I'm just curious about, do you, you know, what is, what is that vision look like for you? And I'm curious because, you know, you have such an interesting transition, kind of reverse of my path.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. Everything that you just said is something that I can entirely relate to. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that I, I'm, you know, thank you for even bringing that up and mentioning it because it's something that I forget about myself, (laughs) but there's there's this distinction between, uh, like Mm -hmm. having traveled and having not traveled for either side of any, um, situation like that.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Wow. I love that. And thank you so much, Wilson, you know, really to share your journey today, share the story. This is so incredible. Um, hey, thank you. Is it's it been an honor. Else? Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you want to share with our listener that I have not asked you today?
1: I don't think so. I think we've, uh, I think we've touched on <laughs> most things. We touched on a few tangents that were enjoyable as well.
0: Yes, yes. Well, thank you again, Wilson, you know, for such an incredible journey. I love, love that you have you know, such a courage in such a young age, you know, go to the new world, experience a new culture, pick a new language, um, met um, your passion of your life, coffee and your wife, and come back full circle. <laughs> what a beautiful story. And I love, love your passion to coffee and that's how you serve the world. So I am so honored to share your story today and i love to support you. I want to make sure, you know, include all the incredible links below, guys. Feel free to check it out. Uh, support Wilson. And yeah.
1: Thank you so much again. Thank you so much.
0: Of course. All right, guys, ladies and gentlemen, this is it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it and have a beautiful day. I will see you next time.